Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to Bible Quest. This is the Tuesday edition where we talk with you about the Bible and its relevance for today every Tuesday at 2. My name is Justin Doms. And let me take a moment to invite you to interact with us live. You can use the live chat here on YouTube. We'll be watching that to see any questions or comments you may have about the study today. Uh, we'll also be checking questions or comments that come in through our website. You can check that out at BibleQuest.tv. Uh, we want to talk with you about your questions and concerns in your journey to know the Lord and His Word. Uh, so we're excited to interact with you in that way. Uh, today we have with us Scott Smelser. How are you doing today, Scott? Doing all right, Josh. How about you? I mean, Justin, excuse me. <laughs> all right, doing okay. Uh, been a bit of a recovery week for both of us. I think you and I were both away for uh, for campus last week. So, um, and so today we've been starting. Um, we had started this study through the Gospel of Mark about a year ago, actually. Now, uh, and so we're coming close to wrapping it up. So we'll be picking up in Mark fifteen, verse sixteen. Uh, Scott, do you want to kind of? Get us rolling here and see where we are at this point. All right. Verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole town. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to it. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. This is an interesting passage because it has uh, a lot of emotional impact to it. Uh, there's some interesting historical references. Um, I'll start with uh, the emotional impact for me uh, for Jesus to be uh, stripped of his own clothes and then clothed in this mocking way with the purple cloak. They've taken the thorns and twisted it to a crown. They're having their fun. Uh, these these Roman soldiers, they're really there as peacekeepers. Uh, and this is a chance for them to, to flex their military muscles and to do what they do best, which is to uh, humiliate and subject. And they uh, they strike Jesus on the head uh, what what gets me is that this isn't just uh, 10 or 11 guys, which would be, I mean, that'd be nerve wracking enough. Um, but this is a, a cohort. Uh, I've got a note here and I looked it up. This is about 500 to 600 men uh, that have gathered together. And so Jesus is standing for this huge group of men who want to basically have their way with him. Um, the interesting thing about this is Jesus could easily have just swatted them away with his divine power. Uh, he doesn't do that. He allows himself to be humiliated and beaten by them, uh, and they, they mock him. I just, the, I don't know that Jesus was ever afraid. Um, he has submitted himself to this moment, but if this were any any other man, this would have to be a terrifying moment to be uh, at the mercy of these 500 bloodthirsty soldiers. Now, what, what do you see here as being significant? Well, and you mentioned humiliation. Um, you, you know, why did the Romans crucify? And of course, Pilate did not want to crucify. It was the Jewish leaders that insisted, you know, crucify, crucify. Um, but why was crucifixion a thing in the Roman Empire? So we have a quote 
um, can't remember it's from Cicero or Quintilian, but it said, we choose public roads, the mo more public roads for crucifixion uh, because they want people to see this and be horrified and intimidated. Um, if you wanted to kill somebody, you could kill them in a prison cell and you can do it quickly. That's not what they're asking for. Uh, if you wanted to torture somebody, you could torture somebody in a prison cell and do it slowly. This is a public humiliation, public torture, public crucifixion, so that anybody watching it, the, 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 the enemies of Jesus want this to be the end of Jesus. If he dies a heroic death, it might not be the end, but crucifixions stamped a big, on top of everything else, a big loser mark on yeah. the being crucified. Do, do you think there's any kind of um, um, prejudice here? Maybe prejudice is not the right word, but, but it looks like the Roman soldiers are not just about putting Jesus in his place, but even about putting the Jews in their place. Uh, certainly it's, it's Pilate who says, you know, he's the king of the Jews, has that inscription written above him in a moment. Um, but here they're saying, verse 18, hail king of the Jews. And so it's almost as though it's their chance to get a dig in at um, the people they've invaded. Uh, because Jews are not Roman citizens, except for a few exceptions, like Paul. Uh, they don't have like the position the Philippians have being a Roman colony. Uh, and the Romans were frustrated from time to time with Jews. Pilate was frustrated with Jews um, uh, when there'd be complaints on idolatrous bases and stuff. And and so, yeah, here's this, you're, you're the Roman Empire. And you're, you're soldiers in the Roman Empire. And here's, you're out in this dusty province of Judea. And here's a guy, supposedly the king of the Jews. So I, I think it's mocking him. And also, is, they're not they're not calling him Caesar. They're calling him king of the Jews. Right, right. So they all, they do all this in their uh, in the governor's headquarters. The historical note on this. I don't know if you have a thought about this. There have been been essentially two ideas about where this takes place, either in the fortress of Antonia, which would be uh, on the eastern side of the city there on the, the north west corner of the Temple Mount. There's a, that fortress that Josephus refers to, or probably this is uh, Herod's palace um, that's on the western side of the city. Um, any, any, any thoughts about where this takes place? Uh, Jesus is I don't know, it's just interesting. He's in his own city. He's been rejected by his own people. But the prophecies that he had made, the statements he had made leading up to this, is that he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles again and again. Back in Mark 10, for example, um, he says in verse 33, they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Uh, Jesus knew that he was going to be delivered over to people after his own people rejected him. So whether it's in the fortress or St. Herod's palace, uh, Jesus has been delivered over to the worldly powers 
uh, and they're going to be striking him down. So they lead him away to crucify him. Uh, and like you said, it's going to be at a public place. John 19 tells us that there were many people who would have been able to pass by this, this area. So it's definitely public execution. Um, you see anything else through verse 20? Just, it's just cruel. And if you deserved it, like the one thief is going to say, we deserve this. And this is, this is the Christ. And this is what he goes through for us. Yeah. Uh, someone helped me see um, the crown of thorns. Uh, when you think about the Bible story and thorns, uh, what comes to mind? Oh, first thorns are in the garden. Um, it's going to be part of the curse. Um, and in Hebrews, it talks about, you know, the land. If it yields fruit good, if it yields thorns, it's worthy of being burnt. This is another insult. You know, we're, we're going to give you a crown. There's your spiky crown of thorns. And then they're taking a read it. And, you know, they don't want to, they don't want to put their hand on the thorns. Mm. But they're taking the read and striking it down on it. Yeah. And, and whether they realize it or not, this is, this has huge uh, symbolism for the Bible story, right? Because um, high priests under the, the law of Moses would lay their hands on the sacrifice or the one who's offering the sacrifice even would lay hands on the head of the animal. Uh, and, and essentially that animal is then bearing the weight of sin and then is dying in, in the place of the one who's offering the sacrifice. And so here you have the Gentiles who are laying thorns on the head of Jesus. And so there's a, there's a sense in which he becomes the king, not just of the Jews, but king of the sinners. Uh, he, he bears the, the guilt and the weight uh, of all of mankind on his head as he goes to the cross. All right here in verse 21 says they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Just so much here. Yeah. Two things. One, back in Isaiah 53, yeah, we esteemed him smitten of God. Um, People like to see people get what's coming to them. And they think this is what Jesus has coming to them. And they, they think he deserves this. But they're not watching, so many of these are not watching it with a horror, 
in, in, in sense of justice, but just kind of reveling in the walking uh, and kind of twisting the knife emotionally as it goes. I got some comments on verse 21, but before we leave that, I just want to hear any thoughts that you've got. Well, I, I was just going to ask a question about that. Um, but you, you did mention Isaiah 53 here in verse 27. And they crucified him uh, with the two robbers. Uh, one was right, one is left. And uh, he's numbered with the transgressors. You know, anybody passing by this uh, scene, not knowing who Jesus is, would just look and see three criminals uh, being tortured for their heinous crimes. Uh, and, and our thought is, wow, they must have done something really terrible to deserve this. I mean, I don't know if you, they don't put chain gangs out much anymore, but you still see guys in, uh, you know, in their orange <laughs> on the sides of the road, sometimes picking up trash. Um, you know, occasionally I've seen a guy with a tracker around his ankle or something. And, and you don't think to yourself, oh, those poor guys. You usually think, what did they do? <laughs> Uh, and so here's Jesus, and he's suffering in this way. And there's a part of me that wants to think someone with some kind of, you know, human compassion would look at the scene and just see these three men suffering terribly. Uh, but probably they're just thinking these guys must have done something really awful. In Luke, it does mention some women as Jesus walks by on the way to die. And they're weeping for him. It says, don't weep for me. Uh, maybe calls them daughters of Jerusalem. I can't mm -hmm. You know, weep for what's coming upon you. And of course, the Romans are destroying the, the city and the temple. Uh, but just, you know, cruel, hateful. And like you said, when you see a bunch of criminals, you assume they deserve to be there. Right. And uh, the, the, the cross, here's three references to the cross that are interesting. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified. And he said to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. Uh, so there was a satirist later a couple of hundred years later named lucian or maybe a little bit less than that and he wrote about a lot of topics including christians and he despised christians and he thought they were very gullible and he's like they worship a crucified guy right it just seems ridiculous to him and probably the oldest artistic perhaps one of the oldest artistic representations we have of Jesus is actually an insult, uh, crudely drawn kind of comic in, in a wall in Rome. And Agamemnon is a believer, and an unbeliever is making fun of Agamemnon. You, you can Google Agamemnon graffito and see this. It's a crude kind of scraped onto the wall image or painted or whatever. Agamemnon is bowing down before a figure on a cross, which is obviously Jesus. It says Agamemnon worships his God, but the man on the cross has a donkey's head. Yeah. So it's just like to them, it's into these people there. 
this looks like the epitome of what's wrong and he deserves this and they don't have what's actually happening right and, and of course like you said uh there, there were lots of other ways that they could have executed jesus or tortured jesus uh, but it was this choice there's also the choice of god uh, and so maybe there's something in the cross that helps us to see uh the shame of sin because a lot of times with sin we we tend to kind of gloss over sin or think it's really not as bad because we compare it to one another uh, and this just exposes sin for all its ugliness and all its uh, all its shame and humiliation. Back in Isaiah 53, when he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied, and it, it pleased him to crush him. This wasn't going to be just a quick, uh, painless death. It, sin is being punished here, and Jesus is, is taking the punishment for us yeah you said you had some thoughts about verse 21 i want to ask who are alexander and rufus yeah obviously i believe the audience that mark is writing to knows alexander and rufus uh because if you were describing to me somebody in philadelphia and you said oh uh they're david and amy's neighbors right that makes sense to me because you know David and Amy, and I know David and Amy, but I don't know their neighbors. Mm -hmm. So if you introduce somebody telling me about them or introducing me to them, this is so-and-so, David and Amy's neighbors. You don't say that like you don't know my neighbors, Ed and Tara. I met Ed and Tara's son this morning. If I introduced, I said, oh, this is Ed and Tara's son. That means nothing to you because you <laughs> right. used to head in terror. So let's start with that it's compelled. Uh, Roman soldiers could order and compel somebody to carry things. Was, we have reference to this in uh, uh, if somebody makes you go a mile, et cetera, compels you a mile in Matthew 5. And the passerby is Simon, Jewish name, of Cyrene. And He's coming in from the country. So he's coming to, he does not know what's going on here, probably. Right. Poor guy. It's just coming in and it's like there's a Jew, grab him and make him carry the cross. Jesus has been up all night. He's been beaten. He's been scourged, no doubt, horrifically. And it's apparently at some point having trouble carrying the cross. And so they compel him. Then it says that this Simon is the father of Alexander and Rufus. Well, it's generally understood that Matthew seems to be writing for a Jewish audience, Mark for a Roman audience, Luke for a uh, Greek audience, and John a later um, audience a few years later. There's a Rufus mentioned in Romans chapter 16 uh, that Paul, he was one of the Romans. Now, you could have two Christians in Rome named Rufus, obviously. So it doesn't have to be the same guy. But it, it is what could be. Uh, for them, for Christians in Rome to know Alexander and Rufus, the most obvious uh, idea would be 
that Alexander and Rufus became disciples of Jesus. Right. And if they both became disciples of Jesus, and their daddy was the one that helped carry the cross, uh, I I think Mel Gibson's movie Passion of Christ has a thought-provoking scene. We don't know it happened this way, but here's how he did it. They order Simon to carry the cross, and he does not want to. You know, no, why? But they force him to. But as he walks along with Jesus and kind of seeing the evidence of what has happened already and what's about to happen and how Jesus handles it in the movie, you know, just there's, it impresses him strongly. And it may have impressed him strongly enough. And then the resurrection that it led him to perhaps become a disciple of Jesus and then both of his sons. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, the, the name, why, why name this man? Uh, it's interesting that names are, are placed here and there throughout the text. You've got uh, Jairus, didn't have to say Jairus, just could have said more of the rulers of the synagogues or yeah. um, Bartimaeus. Why name the guy? Um, this is the kind of thing that you know, if you find an old letter written by your grandfather and it mentions to your grandmother uh, a name and you don't know the name, but obviously your grandmother knew who that person is. It's just the kind of thing you'd expect to find in a historically yeah. true record. Uh, and so there there was an Alexander and Rufus. And it's 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 the kind of detail that would be missing in a made-up story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. And the three names are given differently. The first one is introduced. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene. And then he says, you know, the father of Alexander Rufus. So here's this guy. And then he tells you who he is by referring to people who he doesn't introduce. Um, uh, somewhat similar, won't get off on a long tangent here. But I suspect that Theophilus was likely a Macedonian. He's a government official, clearly. Um, and for a few reasons, but one primarily, Luke throughout the book of Acts introduces people. There's a certain man, there was a certain man that until you get to Jason. And he just, there, and Jason and certain other people, Theophilus seems to know Jason. Mm. Well, uh, Macedonia was the political capital of Macedonia, or excuse Thessalonica was the political capital of Macedonia. So that's a side, I probably didn't need to get off on that sidetrack, and, and that's not certain by any means. But when an author treats someone as a known entity, it's because the audience is right. familiar with that person already. Yeah, it's similar to what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, look, there are 500 witnesses, you know, go and check them out. Um, you, know, you, you, you wanna know who to talk to about the resurrection? I've got a list of people, you can go and check it out. Um, as he goes through here, it says that the the soldiers offered Jesus wine mixed with myrrh. Uh, I've heard before that this was Jesus refusing to have any kind of sedative or um, pain reliever. Um, but after doing some more research, it may be that um, their concern wasn't to relieve the pain or to 
prolong his agony. Uh, but this was just one more way to humiliate someone. Like the myrrh would have made the drink very bitter. And so you think you're getting, you know, a show of kindness and then it slaps you in the face uh, because the drink is just undrinkable and and Jesus doesn't drink it. Um, he won't take it. I don't know. You have thoughts about the wine mixed with myrrh? Never, I, I've heard that, you know, uh, the first idea and I've just never researched it. So wouldn't be in a position to know which it would be. Yeah. They end up dividing his garments. Uh, they cast lots for them, uh, which is, of course, prophetic. Psalm right, Psalm 22. Uh, and then, I don't know, the, the words of these people who are going by wagging their heads in verse 29 and following, it just, uh, you, can't, you can't believe the hard-heartedness of some people. Um, he saved others, save yourself. Well, they're admitting in verse 31 that he had actually performed miracles, that he had saved other people. Uh, I don't know, it, just, it seems so so blind that they're unwilling to uh, receive Jesus as, as the Christ and, and the Son of God. Uh, other thoughts through verse 32? Uh, just, just noting there that the chief priests with the scribes mocked him and saying this. Hmm. So I don't think they're acknowledging, they're certainly not, not acknowledging who he really is, but this is just mockery. Yeah. And you know, it's most people, even if you just see an animal suffering, you want to put it out of its misery. There's a lot of people here on this day that don't want Jesus put out of his misery yet. They want their misery to last to last. Next text. When the sixth hour had come, the whole and darkness was over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken? Opening line, Psalm 22. Some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And some spilled vinegar. Um, did we, wait, did we read this already? No, you're good. Okay. Uh, someone filled a sponge with wine and put it on and gave him a strong drink. Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way, uh, excuse me, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. The temple, the curtain there, the, the tabernacle had given, I think, kind of two messages. From the beginning, it just says, I am with you. I'll be your God, you'll be my people. I am with you. But at the same time, it kind of said, keep your distance. Don't come too close. Uh, only the priest could come in the first chamber. Only the high priest once a year could come in the second one. And one of the key phrases in Hebrews, along with better, uh, is and hold fast, is draw near. Come right. boldly. And 
as Jesus has died for our sins, that separating veil is ripping from the top down. And of course, for it to be ripped from the top down, <laughs> I mean, just you, you, you picture you, there's only one person who could do that. Uh, nobody's saying the bottom is going to reach out. Oh, yeah, that's true. Um, so yeah, it's, it's certainly this moment where uh, the separation has been taken away because sin has been properly dealt with. Um, I wonder if there's sort of a double meaning here too, um, that the the veil sort of represents the garments of God, and He's tearing them in in mourning. I don't know. Um, he's the Son of God cries out, and the Father chooses to leave Him there. Uh, and so because he, he leaves him there and he suffers and dies, it, it means it's hard to imagine what's happening in heaven in this moment. Um, is there joy? Is there sorrow? Um, this is, it's just really, really heavy here. Let me, let me point out this. At the cross, we see, like sometimes I find it an interesting question to ask people, is God more merciful and less punitive is he more punitive and less merciful? And lots of times people have an idea that God is really, really merciful and not very punitive. And you start looking at sometimes in the Bible where God punishes sin, and then somebody says, wow, God is not very merciful. He's really punitive. Then you start looking at the people God had mercy on, and the fact is the Bible shows God being very, 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 very merciful and very, 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 very punitive. Right. And it hinges on whether or not we will come to him for grace and humble ourselves and repent. But at the cross, you see both the punitive and merciful side at the same time. Yes. Because this is how sin is being punished. And yet it's being punished so that we who committed the sins won't be punished for it. Yeah, I, I often think of uh, James 1, where it says, let everyone be, be quick to hear and slow to speak uh, and slow to anger. Uh, and then the next verse, you know, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of right. God. Um, we get angry and oftentimes we get angry for the wrong reason or to the wrong degree. And we overreact uh, and we end up hurting people when we shouldn't. Uh, but God in his anger, in his righteous anger, uh, deals with sin in such a way that he doesn't destroy us. He destroys sin. Um, now he's going to destroy the wicked. He hates the wicked. Psalm 5, Psalm 11 point that out. Um, but it's just interesting to see the wrath of God that is poured out on Jesus so that we are saved. Uh, how does God deal with his anger? He saves people. <laughs> Uh, it's just it is incredible what he what he does um, without sacrificing any of his righteous wrath or his uh, is in his concern to be gracious and merciful. He accomplishes both at the cross. There. Uh, the sixth hour. Um, any thoughts about this? We talked about the third hour and the sixth hour. We didn't make any comments on that. Romans have a funny way of measuring time, but it makes as much sense as 24 hour period. Uh, this is now about noontime, right? Sixth hour would be noon. Ninth hour, uh, by my understanding, would be three in the afternoon. Yeah. So he's been on the cross. Essentially, the process started um, that morning. 
right and then now in the afternoon before sunset um so he's he's crying out my god my god why have you forsaken me this is certainly a reference to psalm 22. we've been studying the psalms here recently in philadelphia and had a good discussion on uh jesus on the cross using this statement um so was this jesus simply referring people back to psalm 22. uh was jesus feeling these things himself was he feeling forsaken of god what, what do you see happening here in this statement well what he's feeling we should never think that because he is jesus this somehow doesn't hurt right uh, in the garden we see just he's in tremendous agony knowing what's about to happen but let's remember too that there's physical torment about to happen and he's about to bear the sin of the whole world second Corinthians 5 says in in some sense not that he's guilty of any sin but he becomes sin on our behalf. what would that be like for someone that's holy you know i'm not going to pretend to know um so he's in agony yeah and yet he's not just wondering why have you forsaken me this is the line of an opening uh, song um, right. if you start what's the opening line for amazing grace amazing grace oh yeah there, there, there. <laughs> um the uh but you, you can sing it sometimes in the back of the songbook it'll have a title but sometimes it's listed by the opening line because that's often how we remember songs there's a verse in John where he said he's talked about that they're all going to leave him, but he says, and yet will not be alone. The Father is with you. So I think we need to be careful uh, here. Uh, do you remember where that is in John? I think it's I, I don't remember. I, I remember what you're saying here. Um, I don't have my usual Bible in front of me, so I'm having trouble spotting. Um, maybe I can find it in a minute. Uh, but so I think we can get in trouble if we overstate this too much and say that there's no fellowship here between the Father and the Son. Um, but there's also something really ominous here, and there's a darkness and. Uh, Go ahead, did you find it? Yeah, I did. It's uh, John 16, uh, 32 and 33. Uh, he says, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. But I am not alone, for the Father is with me. So I'd, I'd like to point it out like this. The Father has not abandoned Jesus in that i no longer what, what did he say at the about this is and, and at the mouth this is my beloved son you know my well pleased student that was back at the baptism this is still god's beloved son in whom he is well pleased right um he's doing what the father has asked and sent him to do god does not disapprove of Jesus the person. God disapproves of the sin that 
that Jesus is buried. Right. Um, but in another sense, who dies on the cross? The Holy Spirit doesn't die on the cross. The angels don't get flogged. The Father doesn't get his hands nailed. It's Jesus of Nazareth, and he alone. Right. That gets nailed to that cross and bears our sins. So, in one sense, as it says here, you're all going to leave me, but I'm not alone. The Father is with me. This is still the, the, the Son of God. This is still Jesus the Christ, my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. But right. at that moment, he is Isaiah 53 on him, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he's that you have the sky becoming dark, the earthquake. The, this is a horrific, horrific deeds are being atoned for. I think I think it bothers us to think of the father abandoning the son, um, and maybe part of that is because we have this this picture um, of what we feel like when God doesn't show up and you see some of that in the psalms i think psalm 22 originally written by david david was going through something where he felt like god had just completely abandoned him you continue to read through that psalm and you see that god shows up and he rescues david i think part of the point at the cross is that god doesn't show up <laughs> you know jesus does die um, now later he's gonna be raised from the dead and so he's gonna be vindicated Isaiah 53, he's he's with a, a rich man in his death. He's buried in a rich man's tomb, kind of vindicated in some way. Uh, but this idea that uh, the father abandons the son, it's not as though Jesus didn't know that that was the plan. And what I've related it to, uh, at least in my mind, uh, you know when when David sins with Bathsheba and he, he needs to cover up his sin. So the plan is to get Uriah to come and get him to go home with his wife, and that'll that'll take care of it. But Uriah doesn't go. Uriah's a righteous man. And then so he gets Uriah drunk. Well, Uriah still won't go. And interestingly, even here in the gospel, they're offering Jesus this drink. Um, but finally, David sends a message with Uriah, which is going to kill Uriah. And what's going to happen is Uriah's going to be on the front lines of battle and they're going to abandon him there. They're going to pull back so that he's forsaken and he's killed. Jesus is like that where he's sent by the king with this message and the message is going to kill him, except Uriah doesn't know what's in the message. Jesus does. Jesus knows all along that the message is going to kill him. And so I think in that way, uh, he knows that the plan is God's going to pull back and he's not going to intervene and i'm just going to die here and that's going to be it uh, and so in that way the question is for himself but it's also for everybody standing there why would god allow this man to suffer and die this way this righteous man and the answer is going to be on sunday morning um to save us <laughs> that's not going to be the answer yeah and and like i said i think we should be careful sometimes language gets used to describe this that i think you don't have to warrant for based on the statement you're all going to leave but i won't be alone the father's with me but right. that also is to be qualified by the fact 
that it is Jesus who will die and bear the sin. Right. Jesus only. And he will have this cup. He will have to drink this this bitter cup. And let us be thankful that he did. Amen. The centurion's response. Um, I just I wonder how many people this man had seen die. Uh, and when he sees Jesus die in this way. Um, the, the way that I understand uh, death on the cross to work, you you actually die uh, by suffocation, right? Is there's a buildup of fluids, and because you're hanging here, uh, every breath you would would take, you can you can inhale, but you cannot exhale, and so carbon dioxide just continues to build up. And so, if you want to exhale, you actually have to lift up on the cross to exhale. So everything that Jesus says on the cross is is a painful exercise of will where he's having to put all that pressure on the nails. And so when he rises up to shout this cry, this is a, a different kind of death than this centurion has ever seen. This man is not what they said he was. And the their crucifixion involves also there's a great loss of blood. And so how does oxygen spread to the body? And you're just constantly bleeding. He's bleeding from his head. He's bleeding from his back. He's bleeding from his hands. He's bleeding from his feet. There's blood all over. And each half hour that goes by, there's just more and more and more blood gone from that body. There is one report in Josephus of a man who I can't remember. I think it was Titus. Saw a man being crucified that he didn't want to be crucified. He ordered him to be taken down. But he still didn't survive. Like within a few hours, he was dead anyway. Uh, the There's been lots of reports about how suffocation contributes to it or lack of oxygen, which explains why they would break the legs. But right. it's not as simple as that in that position you can't breathe. Uh, so like you can go and grab, a, you know, supports or whatever and put yourself in that position in pain and you can still breathe but it's not going to be as easy and as you're losing blood and as you're losing blood then you know if you're wanting to and the pain on the hands is unbearable and what's the only way at least the pain on the hands stand on the feet the pain on the feet is unbearable what's the only way to and you've just got, and by doing this, of course, you could probably get yourself in a better position to breathe. And so when they want him to go ahead and get him down off the, you want him dead, break the legs, which leaves them hanging, unable to pull up. Uh, and then uh, eventually, and with the loss of all the blood, and, and then you have death. And it will be from the Gospel of John confirmed by the soldier who makes sure about piercing the spear. You know, these are all details we just, we need to think about. And I have to ask a question here. If, if you were going to make up a religion, why this one? <laughs> to the Greeks' foolishness. I'd, I'd, why would you ever want to follow a man who suffered and died this kind of ignoble death? It's just, it, it, it is completely foolish unless it's true. 
And his message to us is if you want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, how about we read this last last section before the end of uh, before we get into 16, we can call it a day here. Verse 40. Uh, there are also these women looking on from a distance. There's Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph, Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him, ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, as it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. When he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph, and Joseph bought a linen shroud, taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. There's a lot of debate about what day it is exactly. I think the simplest thing here is that this is Friday. Uh, he's died on Friday just before sunset on Friday, leading into the Sabbath day. So that's clear in the Gospel of Luke. Um, and we can get into those things uh, next week because uh, we are out of time here. And I've got to get to another study. Um, but here we end with the disciples on the road to Emmaus are going to say, we had hoped that he would redeem Israel. Right. Uh, this ends up looking pretty hopeless, and then boom, what a change. And that's what we'll pick up next time. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for joining in with us today. Hope this has been helpful and encouraging to you. Uh, it's a really heavy topic, but such a necessary story. It's the center of, of human history, uh, the cross of Jesus. Uh, thanks for tuning in. And again, if you have thoughts or questions you'd like to share or requests for future studies and discussions, you can visit our website at BibleQuest.tv. Until Thanks. next week, God bless. Have a good week.